Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Watch the current news reports about deployment of troops from the 82nd Airborne from Fort Bragg to Iran. We can't help but to keep each warrior in our thoughts for a positive outcome. They protect our borders and our freedom, but how are we as a country protecting the lives physically, emotionally, and spiritually of our veterans after they return home from their missions? You're listening to Imagine Publicity on Air, and I'm your host, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Today, my guest is Tom Satterley, who is one of the most highly regarded Tier 1 Delta Force operators in American military history. He shares his stories and experiences from the Battle of Mogadishu, well known from the movie Black Hawk Down, other missions, and his personal battle with PTSD in his book co-authored with Steve Jackson titled All Secure. Welcome, uh, Tom Let's start with a brief, brief background about you. Where did you come from? I was born in Seymour, Indiana, and raised there most of my life until I left, actually, when I joined the military in 1986. And what, um, what was your motivation to join the military and go on to become a Green Beret and then subsequently a member of the unit? You know, I wish I had a long, thought-out plan of what I've done in my life, but it was kind of stepping stones along the way. I, when, I, when I graduated high school, I, I started going to Indiana University um, part-time while I was also building houses, uh, and it's just what I did. I did construction in high school because I had no, no plan in life, and my friend had joined the Army and went away to basic training and, and advanced individual training and came back, and he was home for a short while before he was going to Germany and we were on our way to a John Cougar concert in Indianapolis. And that was about a, an hour long drive. And on our drive up, he was telling me all about the army and how great it was. And, you know, I should consider it. And, and when I, by the time I got to Indianapolis, I had kind of made up my mind that that's what I was going to do. It was going to force me into a direction. It was going to force me to stick with something for at least a short amount of time. And, but, you know, I went ahead and enlisted, and went home and told my parents, who subsequently freaked out. And and in February of '86, I, I I went to basic training at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and um, I ended up spending three years in Germany. And it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Uh, early on, it was you know I was driving armored personnel carriers. I was just a, a regular army guy doing 
nothing really. And I didn't feel that I was attracted to it anymore. So I started making plans on college when I got out. And then I was introduced to some different training schools. French commando school we went through as the first platoon, American platoon to go together in French commando school. And that was very exciting. We went to the Swiss March. That was 40 miles a day for a week. Um, and that was difficult, but yet I got to struggle through some things and learn a lot about myself. And then they had a competition for one slot for a German ranger school. And I competed with hundreds of other soldiers who wanted to go. And I ended up winning that. And once I completed and, and passed German ranger school, I had kind of made up my mind that I wanted to stay in the army and do something else like special forces and become a green beret. So I reenlisted for six more years. I, I got back to jump school, which put me at Fort Bragg, which gave me access to the recruitment um, locations for special operations and the Green Berets. And I immediately signed up to be a Green Beret. And I ended up spending three years basically in school. And it was just one school after the other of trying to improve my position in, in my career and try to climb that ladder. And then um, I made I made the qualification course to be a Green Beret. I graduated. And I was in language school in 1990. And I had four months of language school to speak funny Persian Farsi, which is what they speak in Iran. And um, I was approached by two gentlemen who said that, hey, we watched you during the six-month train-up. We think you have what it takes to be in the unit. Do you want to do that? And I was like, well, that sounds cool. I don't even know what it is, but that sounds really cool. I'll do that. If it's better than this, I'll do it. And that day in language school, I put in a – I made a call to the recruiters for the unit and had my packet going. So in spring of 91, I had a date to go to selection. And that's kind of what changed my life. It was just who I met, where I was at the time, and seeing different things along the way that that interest me and put me in a position to deal with the bullies of the world that I wanted to deal with, which I thought when I joined the Army that would happen. I just had to find that specific job that would allow me to be able to do that. Well, how how does the unit differ from other special ops groups? What is there? I know it's kind of like the the top of the totem pole that you can you can arrive at. And how does it differ? I think the best way to describe how the unit differs from other special ops units, to include the Navy SEALs and and Marine MARSOC and Air Force PJs, are are age. They're usually older. They're on their second enlistment. Um, They've been in lower leadership positions already, so they're either an E5, which is a non-commissioned officer, or they've had to be an officer that's had a, a command already to even come and try out. So you're starting at a more mature level. You're starting with some training already, and now anybody can go to the unit. Um, mostly it comes from combat arms like the Rangers or Special Forces, but anybody can go and try out. And our psychological assessments – are what sets us apart because we're expected to operate either as an individual or small, small elements of two or more to our largest, you know, uh, team size element is six people. So you're always expected to be able to do multiple jobs, be able to make those adult decisions, understand the critical issues that, that happen after making decisions. And they really rely on maturity a lot. So that's what makes the unit so much more, um, special to me was the people that you work with left and right. As I moved up, the lower I was, say, in the Army, people to my left and right were just like me. They didn't know what they were doing. So I was surrounded by people that didn't know anything as well. 
to now I'm a leader in an organization full of leaders that are professional athletes, if you will, or professionals at their job and, and can't get any better. And the person to my right and left can take up my job at any time. I can take up their job at any time. We back each other up. And oh, by the way, we're more mature and we've already been tested over and over again to make those critical decisions in a timely manner and not place, you know, your own self-worth in, in a way to get in the way of it. So everyone there is for a common goal for the unit, for the mission that we have and to protect each other. And I know a lot of other organizations say that, but the key to it is the maturity level and the psychological evaluations that we go through to find those people that behave generally the same and can watch out for each other. And so all of this special training and and becoming part of the unit brought you to Somalia and the Battle of Mogadishu uh, that uh, was just... uh, and what were the what were we there to accomplish in that battle how did how did we get into such a dangerous zone and maybe you can describe this mission of black hawk down and and what the outcome was absolutely and it is very easy for people to forget the goals when people start dying and they just, they they want to pull out they want to go they want to make it go away basically that's what we as humans want bad things to just go away but the warriors that were in Somalia that I was with had a mission, and that was to stop starvation, stop a deed from using starvation as a tool of war. He was killing hundreds of thousands of people by starving them to death while withholding the food that we gave them to feed those people. So they decided to go over and try to help and protect the convoys until the deed continued to attack, killed some Marines, killed some 10th Mountain, some Pakistani troops. And then our mission changed to a killer caption mission of a deed in order to help that food convoys be delivered to those people in need. And all the loss of life that we suffered um, on 3 October and during our time there and all the lives of Somalians um, lost at the time troubled me for for many, many years. And and up until even recently when my wife, uh, maybe a month ago, um, you're talking 20 some odd years later, 25 years later, my wife just a month ago brought it to my attention that hundreds of thousands of people were dying. And now 19 of your friends are dead. Hundreds of them were wounded. Um, you've been messed up your entire life because of it. But have you ever considered how many people you saved by stopping him from starving people to death? And so instead of focusing on the loss of life, American lives and my friends, I started focusing on the change that we created during that battle, how many people we really did help, how many people we saved by stopping a deed from using starvation as a tool. And as horrible as it was, now I choose to focus on the good that we brought, even though it was devastating while we were there. Well, and I think that's something, like you said, that we we want the bad stuff to go away, but it, it's not going to. We have to remember the outcome and, and why we were there in the first place. And that seems to, a lot of times in, in a lot of different things, get pushed to the background. And I, I think it's great that, um, you know, we can remember why we were there in the first place. So what happened uh, September 11, 2001? Where were you? And, and what happened wow. on that day? 
Yeah, that's uh, that's a day everybody remembers. And I, I specifically was getting on an airplane in Raleigh-Durham with two teams um, to fly to Boston to land for some training. And while we were in the air, I was just gazing out the window along the coastline with my GPS in my hand, kind of tracking our, our, our path. And I knew we were over New York, and I looked down and I saw a lot of smoke coming up. And I thought, that's a lot of smog. I would hate to live in New York. And and then the pilot came on over the intercom and, and stated, um, are there any military personnel on the plane? And always hesitant, you know, always hesitant to admit we're in the military, at the t- you know, when we're in, 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 the, in the job that we do. And uh, for some reason, I, I, I kind of raised my hand. I had two teams with me, and I thought, well, this sounded different. And a flight attendant came back and said, the captain wants to talk to you. I walked to the front of the plane. He opens the door. He's like, hey, listen, stay here. Don't let anybody come up here. We're being attacked, blah, 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 you know. And I'm like, uh, okay, I guess I'll stand here. I don't know what's going on. And then he gets on the PA system, starts telling everybody kind of what is happening. There's By that time, a second plane had hit um, the second world you know, tower. And there were other planes and the reports of other hijackings and, and that there were military people on the plane. Everyone needed to stay in their seat. And um, we were going to be allowed to get off the aircraft first and go do our job. And to me, I thought, well, that's a little bit weird because nobody just jumps up, grabs your guns and goes to war. You have to figure out who did it, where they're at, track them down. But it was kind of uh, you know, numbing to get off the plane and then start to wonder – you know, how are we going to get to our training? How are we going to get our vehicle? Where's our luggage? And then, oh, by the way, the phone lines are jammed up and all of our spouses are freaking out because not knowing where we're at, what plane we're on, knowing we're headed to Boston and the news saying that everyone was taking off out of Boston. So it was kind of a very scary, tense moments. And then I knew that our lives had changed and our careers had changed. And I, and I was very, very nervous about being in a leadership position with men under me, knowing that we're going into combat, although not knowing where, it doesn't matter. Combat's combat, no matter where it is. Um, but instead of just being that young guy in Somalia running around and charging myself, breaking things and shooting people and being pointed in directions, now I was the one with, say, six people under me, or sooner or later I'll have 50 people under me, and then more and more and more. I was very nervous about what the future was going to hold at that time. So I just kind of put my nose down took my team out. We continued to train at everything we could train at until we were called up to go, you know, perform our missions. And where was that mission? How, how did you prepare for another war after all that you'd already been through in Somalia? How did, I mean, to me, being, being not non-military, it's very difficult for me to get into that mindset of how you can sort of close the door on this mission and open the door to the next one. The mindset is always training, training to survive, training to be better. So as horrible as Somalia was, we turned into an after-action review on what not to do. So we focused not on what we did well, but what we did wrong and how to improve it. And and that in itself is what ruins a person's life. Um, you know, I, I take that home with me. So we focus like everyone else in, in any job that you're in is what am I weak at? What do I need to work at harder to be better at? Um, what is it? What is expected of me? And oh, by the way, I'm going to be the best at it. Now, the outcome could be different for, for jobs. You know, I'm like the outcome of me not doing my job well might be I get killed or a bunch of my you know, people get killed. 
it, it, the outcomes could be different, but the thought process is the same. I want to do the best that I can at my job, and I'm going to work as hard at it as I can to be the best that I can be. And along with that, for me as a leader, was was studying intelligence reports, studying about the country we're going against, studying about their people and their beliefs and what they do, so I can not have that used against me, and so I don't do something um, against that culture that might be offensive that's not necessary. A lot of people have that mentality that, oh, you go to war, let's just go, let's just go kill people and we'll come back and it's over. That's not it at all. Nobody wants to really kill anyone. If they say that, there's something wrong with them or that most likely they're lying and that's what they think they need to be saying. But the moral injury that comes with that is so devastating that you have to know that your mission is 100%. Everything you do is above board so you can live with it the rest of your life. And every night, every morning I'd wake up and pray that, what the mission I'd done the night before was the right mission that, you know, I made the right decisions. And every time before I went out on a mission, I would pray that I would make those right decisions and bring my men home safe. It was never about me. It was always about making the right decision. So we just put our heads down. We train as best as we can. And we find those little differences in the battle space, if you will, that you go to that you focus on that you maybe not have practiced before. Most things are the same. And we work on standard operating procedures, And then we get specific to the country we're in and the city we're in or the town we're in or the individual we're going after. Where where were you deployed to after that, after September 11th? Um, Well, I – among the places I can talk about, I was in Pakistan. I was in Iraq. Um, that's pretty much what I can admit to being to, but I can tell you that there are people in every country around the world from the unit that are doing missions that are helping other organizations um, support their missions or providing leadership for units that are working as a proxy for the government to try to stop terrorism or the ability for terrorism to rise up. When you see a weak government or, or a weak area in a bad part of town, sadly, we have to go to those areas and expose ourselves to find what's going on and then come back and tell everyone else what's happening and say, okay, here is the possibility of Americans traveling safely in this part of the world or conducting business or, oh, by the way, we can operate there and launch into another country to help our mission as well. So basically all over the world (laughs) is, is, is an answer. Right. And and can you talk about what was Osama bin Laden doing at this particular time? Wow. Uh, I believe he was in hiding, um, probably fearing for his life and, and not trusting anyone, which which if you can imagine living like that, um, being the number one most wanted man on the planet and and the country with the, the greatest wealth offering a bounty on your head and everyone looking for you and all the greatest technologies in the world – must have been terrifying, though I don't really – that part doesn't bother me. He gets what he deserves. But living that way must have been terrifying. And it's, it's, to take somebody like that out after that amount of time is, is really a symbolic gesture. Um, if you think about the effectiveness of leaders at the time that we go after them, the same with Saddam Hussein. Taking him out was effective as a tool, as a political tool, and as to show everyone, yes, he's not coming back. So let's just – smash your hopes and dreams of him coming back and and killing more people and giving your party power. However, 
on the decision-making side of it, it really didn't make much difference because he was ineffective while they're in hiding like that. So it's always good to take out those leaders so they cannot resurface and to take the, the will of the people who support them away. But um, when it really comes down to it, those are just symbolic gestures. There's always well, another leader to take someone's place. That's true. Let's talk about capturing Saddam. Your unit was instrumental in, in finding him. Absolutely. Um, squadron to squadron that rotated over would just pass along the information. Here's who we went after. Here's the family line. Here's what we thought. And while we were doing other missions, every night at the time we're there, 90 days at a time, or you know, plus or minus, which is kind of what the unit decided was a length of time that you could operate at full speed and not get burnt out, not get complacent, because about the 90-day mark, you start getting kind of used to your world used to everything you're doing, and you can become complacent. It's just a natural order of things in life. So you rotate out, a fresh squadron comes in, you pass off the intelligence and information, and they continue to hunt. All the while tracking other people, we're also tracking the main guy. And just so happened that that one night um, on you know 5 December, we were in Baghdad, and we got a report that one of the handlers, one of the brothers that we thought were, were personally taking care of Saddam, was in Baghdad, and I took my troop. We made a quick plan, and we drove out and um, hit the house, cleared it as normal. Nobody was in there. I sent a team down a street to where I'd seen somebody walking down the street. It just, as we pulled up in our vehicles, somebody was walking down the street calmly. I kind of took a mental note, and I ended up sending a team down there who cleared the house, found this gentleman with a plastic gun, a plastic AK-47, underneath his um, underneath his uh his bed and uh luckily they didn't shoot him and they captured him brought him back and he wasn't giving up any information so we sent him to the, the professionals in a different location who ended up calling me several hours later saying this is the one this is the man and I, I still didn't believe it i slowly started waking up my leaders to start planning just because this had happened so many times and once it started looking more and more um real you know, everybody got involved. Everybody started making a plan, and we drove up to the crit. We met up with the other organ, um, the other squadron that was there, the other troop that was there, and made another quick plan. They chose the farmhouse. We got the the cook's house in town, and hit him simultaneously. And you know, for a bit there was a doubt in my mind that we had him because I was like, I was on the radio saying, I have a guy who told me he knows where Sonami is going to take me there, and they were saying, return to base, return to base. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I have this guy. I'm I'm taking him. I'm going to strap him to the vehicle if I have to. He's going to point which way to turn, and we're going to get him. They're like, no, no, return to base. And we returned to base, and a friend of mine said, hey, let me show you something. He took me in one of the back rooms, and there was Saddam sitting at the table. He's like, we did it. He goes, we tracked this dude down, and he had leaves in his beard. He was disheveled. He, I, I looked at him. I said, this this is the president of Iraq? You know, I, I don't know what I expected from a man who was in hiding for all that time, but – um almost a little relief mixed in with a little defiance in his face. Um, you know, as he, as he spit on me, because I, I believe I, I said, he looked like dirty uncle Fester to me. And, uh, that's when he spit on me and I was like, Oh, well, you know, you'll soon be dead anyway. So it really doesn't matter what you do. Mm, what a defining moment that is. And, you know, again, Iran, how is the situation different now than it was 
was compared to back then? And what would you say to the troops that have been deployed there now? I would say that it's it's happened before. It'll happen again. Um, the news always gets you going. The news likes to be bravado. The news likes to make it sound horrible. And through all of my deployments, when I would leave, I was thinking, this is getting better. It's getting better. It's more safe over here. I would come home, and before deployments, I'm watching the news again and again and again, and the news focuses on the bad things that happen. So that's all you see. And I'm thinking, it looks like it's getting worse over there. You get nervous about going back, and you go back, and you're like, oh, no, it is getting better. There are still bombs going off here and there, but Iran's done it before. Uh, you're looking at another government organization that the people really don't support, seemingly anyway, um, by all the news reports that they're protesting, they're unhappy. but their leadership that, you know, Soleimani that was taken out needed to be taken out. He had been killing American lives, planning to kill more American lives. And anytime you get an opportunity to take a leader out like that, you do it. You deal with the consequences later, but you have to do it. You know, he, he just happened to show up at another meeting where you know, people were watching and decided to go ahead and execute this mission. You can't wait for those missions. Many times, um, Higher-ups want you to wait and talk about it and get approvals and ask, well, they're gone by then. These people know not to stay in any one place too long. So when these decisions are made on the spot and actually executed like they are, you, you do win. You actually progress a little further. Though they may retaliate, though it might have been symbolic, I remember talking about my wife to her saying, they're going to do something, but maybe they'll miss. Maybe they'll just just to show their people that we took on America, right? And we fired back at him. You know, nobody injured, nobody killed. Okay, you did your part, we did our part, and that's over. You know, but even their their regime, you know, with the whole shooting down of the, the airplane, now they've done themselves no good. And now that now that the lead killer of that organization has been removed, it emboldens their their people that want regime change to step up and protest more and put more pressure on that regime to uh, be removed. But we are the best army in the world. It's not just uh, something we tell ourselves to feel good about it. We have the most money. We're the most highly trained, and that every soldier needs to take their job serious. I, I applaud those that have joined up since 9-11. I joined up for college money. I, I considered combat as something I saw on TV, but we weren't at war at the time, so it was easy for me to join up, and hopefully I wouldn't go to war. You know, But for those people that are joining up now, while we're at war and the chances of going to war, deploying are very high, I applaud them very much for their bravery that they're still coming in in numbers and they're still defending our country, knowing that the possibility of being at war is very high. So it's, it's, Iran is no different than Iraq or any other country. You know, they'll go back and forth fighting. We're in the way. They don't really want to fight us that hard other than the ground troops that have to, but it, it's really not much different other than oh, it's another country, it's another war, and let's let's be fearful. But uh, I, I don't personally see it as any different as, say, going to war in Iraq or any other location that we've been at war with. Right. I, I grew up during the Vietnam era and watched everything playing out on TV news every night. Do you and, – and do you feel like media has, has kind of sanitized or taken – they basically report what they want to report and what they want us to hear where it seemed like during Vietnam, 
there were so many embedded reporters that you were actually seeing things as they happened. Do you do you feel like there's a difference, and is it better one way or the other as far as media goes? I think it's been changing ever since um, the invent, advent of media being embedded. You know, Vietnam was the big one. It used to be just military reporters would send things back, and you'd get that sanitized story. You know, you don't want to post a story of American losses when we're at war back in the day. You know, you didn't want anyone to even think we were losing. You didn't want that in the heads of the troops. Um, that's propaganda. The, the, the enemy publishes that. You're losing. You took a defeat. You're, you're going to lose the whole war, blah, blah, blah. And that, that really brings your spirits down. Um, it also brings um, Monday morning quarterbacking from people who aren't there immediately. You know, oh, you killed so-and-so. Oh, it's a baby milk factory. You know, that's what the news puts out right away. Well, where'd they get that information? Probably from a local source who wants you to think it was a baby milk factory or it was a baby milk factory, but no babies and no milk are there. They've turned it into a bunker for leaders hoping we wouldn't bomb it. And then we found out that they were there and we bombed it and killed them all. They're like, oh, it's a baby milk factory. So it's always about propaganda and turning the tide and turning people against their cause. So you have to be very careful with the news. I stopped watching the news. Uh, I used to gloat on the news all day long, just watch, watch, watch everything that happened. And now I look at it, everything is a is a news flash. Everything is, you know, look at this, a news flash, news flash. And then, oh, look, there's a clown driving a car and he wrecked. I mean, that's not a news flash to me. That's uh, that's just attention grabbing. And it gets the, the country spun up in a political, whatever political world you live in, Depends on what news source you probably watch. Depends on how angry you get at the other side based on what they're telling you. So, yeah, it's hard to believe the news anymore, just like it's hard to believe anything on the Internet unless you do your own research. And most people don't, so they kind of just adopt the ideas that someone else is spewing to them, if, you, if, if that makes sense. Absolutely does, and I totally agree with you. I watch, I quit watching news years ago and have never gone back. <laughs> It's just I don't yeah, know. Right. I, I, I realized if if I don't know that bad things are happening, I can live happily. If I stare yeah. at all the bad things happening, I cannot live happily. So I no longer exactly. rush out to go save people. I no longer have to worry about what's going on. There's other people in the world to do that for me now, and I thank them for it. I applaud the newer generation growing up to do the job I did for 25 years. I'm going to tune it out, and I'm going to enjoy myself now. So. Agreed. At some point, you have to put on your oxygen mask. You know, you always put yours on first. So you can help others. Mhm. I like living in my little bubble. Everything is wonderful. Well, okay. Coming home from war. At at what point? At what point after you left the military did you realize that you were kind of losing it? It took. It would have been immediate, but I took a job, a contract job, and I moved to Amman, Jordan for almost two years. And I'm doing the same thing I was doing before, only I'm not in combat, no chance of going to combat. I'm training people who will go to combat, and I'm getting paid more. So my world was perfection at the time. And I started just partying and having a great time and working hard and partying hard like warriors do. And... uh when that money dried up and that contract went away, instantly I was back home with nothing to do. No mission, no tribe. The world's going on without me. And how quickly I went from being somebody who was 
able to make a difference in the world too. Someone who felt like I no longer mattered. Everything was passing me by. I laid in bed for months at night, watching TV all night and sleeping all day, eating poorly, not working out, ignoring my family who probably didn't want me around anyway, as grumpy as I was and angry as I was at the world. And, um, I started to drink heavily and started to tank more. And even when I was working, I'd be drinking and I'd be hungover and I'd be wondering about the next drink I was going to have. And, and I was on 13 different medications to counter this and to help with that. And then at one point in my life, I was going to commit suicide and I'd had suicidal ideation for a long time, but it was just more of like, when you're a warrior, you either fix problems or remove them. And I couldn't fix my problem. I had been trying and failing, trying and failing, and I almost failed to try to live the rest of my life. And so I thought, if I can't fix the problem, I'll remove the problem. The problem is me. And in a five-minute period one day in Ohio, I went from miserable to I'm done. I know what I'm going to do. As soon as I get to the parking garage, and I'm clear. I'm going to shoot myself. And as I slowly watched it evolve with my friends getting out of the car, the lady from the camera crew getting out of the car and saying, Hey, you good to go. Let's go. We're going to meet in the bar. I'm like, I I got a phone call I'm going to make. I faked a phone call and I said, I'll catch up. And they all kind of walked away and I I pulled out my gun and charged it. I I started thinking about um, weird things. Like I feel sorry for the rental car company when they find this, Um, you know, I don't want to mess this up and be a vegetable or be more reliant upon other people. And I would just wanted to remove myself as a problem to the world. It wasn't that I felt that I was, well, I, I felt like I was in the way, you know, some people drink to feel, some people drink to forget. I think I drank to feel something and I was as far away from a drink. I was going to be that day. And I was at my lowest point of feeling and empathy and I had zero empathy for anyone. And I was at the bottom of that hole and my, you know, I, I started getting texts on my phone. It just kept beeping and vibrating, vibrating, vibrating. I finally picked it up. It was like, where are you? What's going on? Hey, you're late. And when I saw that, immediately flashed back to, I'm never late for anything. I can't be late. I cleared my weapon, put it away, and I I left and went down to the bar, and I I linked up with my group and ended up sitting with that camera lady who I ended up marrying. Um, She was the one who was texting me. And she knew I was off that day, but she didn't know why. She had no idea for a couple of months exactly what I was doing. But when I told her two months later, she was shocked that I had turned so fast. And then we had been working together for some time after that, um, training more military. And she was seeing that more military lives were lost and people that she met weren't coming home for the next training iteration that she was videoing. And she said, we have to help these people. Instead of training them to go to war, let's train them when they're done with war. Let's help them live the life that they fought for. And let's start with you, by the way. And I'm like, okay, I guess so. And she's like, and by the way, you need to write a book with all your stories because it will help people heal. And we fought and fought and fought on that for a long time. Just it wasn't in me to step out. It wasn't in me to talk about my job or what I did because it was 20 years of don't talk about what you did. Don't ever. And, um, you know, plus with, you know, oh, Navy SEALs write a book here and there and here and there. And so in our community, it's like my friends are like, what are you, a Navy SEAL? Now you're writing a book. And I'm like, well, do you know what the book's about? Of course, the answer was no. I hadn't written it yet. 
And so I would give him a synopsis of how the book was going to lay out. And they're like, oh, well, that's cool. That's helpful. And I'm like, yes, thank you for not being judgmental next time. But it's a very harsh world. But my wife said, listen, you're a leader. You need to continue being a leader. Be the first on the dance floor. Trust me, others will follow. And so reluctantly, we wrote the book. Um, Steve Jackson did a great job of taking those stories and pulling things out of me that I didn't even remember. I, I, there's so much more to my story in my life that I probably another book out there that I don't remember that Steve pulled out that it comes to the surface as you, as you relive these memories. And it's been so helpful for people that even Jen now is writing a book just to help the wives of veterans. Um, there's so much heartache and, and anguish and the need for help out there that she's now taking her side of the story to help the spouses as well. And then, you know, and this is probably the biggest mission you've ever performed because not only, you know, are you leading a small group of, of highly trained people to do a mission, the mission now is to save thousands and thousands of lives because every day, you know, we see more servicemen and women taking their lives because they just can't handle it. And I'm sure that in, in recalling everything that you put into this book, it, it had to be on one hand, very cathartic for you. And on the other hand, you know, reliving all of the visions and everything that you saw and you smelled and, and you lived through had to be very difficult for you. Um, and and many, many of- others. Yeah, it Go was ahead. very cathartic, and it was a lot of crying and a lot of healing. Um, the way Steve tried to pull stories out of me was difficult at times for me to relive, um, writing them down. And then I, I actually chose to read the audio version of the book myself and reading it out loud. Um, there was a lot of studio time of me bawling and crying and, okay, cut that out, um, trying to verbalize what I'd been thinking and put it out there was, was even more cathartic and healing for me, um, but very difficult to struggle through. And I, I spend hours on the phone every day with people who just warriors of the world that you would never even think. And then the first thing they do is they, you know, they say my name and I'm like, how's it going? They start bawling. And if I sit there for 15 minutes while they're bawling and they can't get a word, I'm like, take your time. Just take your time. Right. Get out the poison. When you can say it. You'll say it. And and that's just – it is my most important mission. It is instead of taking lives that are horrible, I'm helping people not take their own life, not ruin their life, not ruin their relationships because they don't want to. Every one of them is, why am I so angry? Why am I so violent, and why do I look at people in distrust? I go, that saved you in combat. Those tools were necessary in combat. It's not necessary – when you come home and the dishes are in the sink and the floor's dirty and the kids are in chaotic mode like they always are, I couldn't handle it for so long. I, I, I would either get angry, violent, or leave. And that's not a way to have a family. And learning to deal with those triggers, learning to catch them when they happen and be aware, you can change that muscle memory because everything is muscle memory. If you do something for so long, that's the way you'll handle everything. We don't even realize we're doing it, just like taking a life. I trained so much to shoot at a target with a gun that I enter a room, there's a man with a gun, boom, it's over. I did my job, and I don't even consider it till later. And that's, that's what it takes to live that world, but we're no longer in that world anymore. 
Now we need to retrain to be someone else again. Right. And what exactly does the military or the Veterans Administration actually do for returning soldiers? You know, they offer a little bit of help. Um, There's help out there. And I've told myself so many times that I would lose my job if I asked for help. I would lose my job if I admitted I need help. And everyone says the same thing. No one ever told me that. People are afraid of that. People are afraid to admit what they consider to be a weakness. But needing help is not a weakness. It's a sign of strength, just like everything else. If you didn't know how to shoot, you got help on how to shoot better, and now you're better at it. If you don't know how to handle your relationship, just ask. Somebody can help you with how to handle a relationship or how to handle your own anger or how to handle your own fears. So it's all about retraining, but it's doable. It's just scary for people to try um, what they're not used to. But we like to use the verbiage and change their thought process on what it really is that they're getting into. You know, I don't have a disorder. I don't have PTS. I don't want the government to take my guns or to be flagged. And all of those things that they're saying, those those reactions from the very few veterans that do those violent things in large numbers or go shoot people, they're like, oh, now we need to mark veterans as, as worrisome or trouble if they admit to needing help. That really turns people off. So we changed. We took out the word disorder. We call it PTS. We could call it occupational stress injury if you want. But we show people that there's help if you work on it. You can be happy if you want to be happy. You just have to put as much work into it as you did to be at the level you were before. Well, what changes do you think are needed in the Veterans Administration? Is I, I think a lot of times in the medical community at large, we, we look to medication. Let's give them this pill or that pill and then another one just to ward off the side effects of the first one. And you get caught in that cycle of, of over-medicating. And do you see that that's happening in, like in the VA hospitals? And what do you think from your standpoint and the work that you're doing could better help veterans? I think the VA is so big, so many people in it, so massive that it's hard to expect to get quality out of it. I mean, any organization that is that big, you know, and then you hear a veteran shoots himself in the parking lot after trying to get help. Oh, fire the leader of the VA. Uh, he had no idea that was happening, right? I mean, can you say that the top guy fostered an environment, you know, after so many people get fired? It's just such a big organization that we can't rely on it. I wouldn't rely on any one organization for my help if I needed it. I, and I couldn't. My wife pushed me to different modalities. I was on, like I said, 13 different pills. And the VA, they'll hand you a pill, which is good temporarily for you to go out and get more help and to, and to change the environment you're in to be better. But it's so big that, of course, they forget about you and they're on to the next person. You go back in, oh, here's more pills, here's a refill, here's this and that. 20 years later, 15 years later, you've been on the same pill taking this and that. You, oh, by the way, it was a temporary pill. You should have only been on it for six months, but you got lost in the system because it's such a large system. And with that many veterans out looking to go to the VA, it's these private organizations or these private nonprofits are, are very good in helping people as well. I just I want people to know to not rely on any one source, but to take care of yourself. Continue to put in the work. If the VA is not cutting it, go somewhere else. If they're not cutting it, go somewhere else. Don't quit and blame the system. 
You make a change. You have the power to make the change and go somewhere else to find the help you need. I've gone through five therapists before my wife and I found a therapist that worked for us. We didn't just quit after the first one or the second one or even third or fourth. We finally found the perfect one, which consequently we hired for our foundation because she's that good. So never quit is what I tell people. The greatest failure is a failure to try. Always keep going because you're going to fail. You're going to fail. And if you, if you fail and stop, that's, that's where you'll be the rest of your life. If you fail and get back up and keep going, you'll always be making progress. But we can't rely on the VA. The VA needs to – and they're slowly starting to adopt it, but we have to jump up and down and scream, this is the help we need, this is the help we need, and it will slowly happen. So until it finally happens in that big organization, we just need to keep reaching out to these smaller organizations that can help us that are more effective. And what about the families of returning vets, the spouses, the children? What's out there for them? Because they, you know, they don't know how to deal with 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 the person who came home a different person. That's exactly why we started our foundation and 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 turned it towards the families. There's so many organizations that help veterans, or take a veteran hunting, or send a veteran to Disneyland. Like that's a thank you for your service in my mind. If, if you send me hunting and send me home, I still have PTSD. I'm still going to take it out of my family. My family's going to develop secondary PTS. The suicide rates of children with parents in the military with PTS is, is very high in skywriting. Divorce is higher than anywhere else. The suicide of spouses is on the rise as well from secondary PTS. We bring it home. We give it to our families, you know, and we, we, we treat them poorly. They see no way out, just like we saw no way out. And then they turn to it. And then the shame cycle continues. We, as a veteran, look at it and we're like, we caused that. We did that. So now I'm worthless again. So it's that cycle that we decided to help the family as a whole. Because if you just help the veteran, you're helping half the foundation. If you help the whole family, you're helping the whole foundation. And then they can help each other. There's always a battle buddy required. So the spouse is your battle buddy now. Your new mission is to have a, a happy life and to raise your children you know, in a happy world and not scream at them for dishes and for you to realize that you're no longer in combat. Let it go. Change that muscle memory. And every time you start to get mad, ask yourself at the moment you realize it, when did it start, why, and do I need to go on, and how can I change this? into a different pattern. I literally would start telling jokes when I was starting in an argument with my wife again. I started telling jokes. And and it's always a good idea to let her know what you're going to do because if not, she gets a little bit angry about it. But I was trying to break the pattern of being mad and saying mean things. I just started cracking jokes. And that broke the pattern of fighting cycle. And then that, that therefore broke the shame cycle of I said so many mean things just to win the argument or just to be right or be on top when really I don't have to win. I'm not in combat. I can lose and learn from it. In combat, you can't lose. So you always want to win. But it, now I have to tell myself I'm not in combat. I don't necessarily have to win, and I can still learn, and I'll walk away from it a better person. I've got to say that um, this is probably one of the most important conversations and interviews I've done in a long, long time. And like I told you off air, I really truly believe this book needs to be used as an educational tool. Um, you know, maybe we can get some copies for the VA 
so that, you know, people can start reading and know that there's, this is not the end, you know, this is not the end. There's so much more ahead. Why don't uh, you give listeners the your website, where they can buy the book, um, what exactly the All Secure Foundation can do for them? Absolutely. So allsecurefoundation.org, there's many resources on there. There's many videos and stories of my story, other people's stories, um, podcasts of people who've called in and talked about their issues. And they're all so similar that you could listen to any one of those or some of those and go, oh, that's me. That's definitely me. And then within our website, which Jen's about to break out with her own book, is Virago for female spouses of veterans. Um, Because we don't always say – now, we we help special operations, so typically the spouse is a female, but that's not 100% the case. So we're always saying the spouse and the veteran, but Virago is for the female spouses to find a safe space to talk about it for active duty spouses whose husbands are still in and their husbands are afraid to say, you know, I need help. So the wife wants to help but doesn't want to admit it on social media or go out because husband's unit may find out about it, that fear of being caught. So that she's created that as a form to help the female spouses um, recover, but it's all about the family. And so you can go on there and find the resources. You can go on there and find that for their information, you can reach out to us and tell us your specific need. And we'll get right back with you and schedule the time to get on a call. Or we also have couples retreats. We're running six this year, just couples retreats, a four day retreat where you and your spouse come in. And we show you what PTS signs and triggers are. We teach you how to integrate that into your into your relationship and how to work through a healthier relationship and how to communicate without fighting and how to recognize it before it blows out of proportion. A lot of relationship help. And then we continue that through the year. After the retreat, we continue contact through the year with our therapists and ourselves checking up on people, as well as we also do active duty um, we're, I think we're doing that at least four times this year where we're helping the larger groups, the FRG groups on Fort Bragg with the wives groups, talking about what your, their husbands or their spouses go through and how to recognize that. And, oh, by the way, you're allowed to be safe. You're allowed to live in your house happily and comfortable as well, too. You don't have to just be a victim at your home. Here's why your veteran or your active duty you know, service member acts out, and here's how you can help um, change the flow of those conversations into healthy conversations. And and then along with that, you know, we're helping. We're starting to look into the children as well. It's just we're growing slow. So what we do, we can do well. And we don't want to do six things and not do them well. We want to do one or two things well and then slowly add on and do more. So we're starting at the head of the family to find help. The book also takes you through that, the story of, of, of how. And it's so similar for everyone else. Like, I don't know how many times I've heard it. The story is like my story, just a hair different, but the outcome is the same. And thank you because the end of the book tells you how to get help and where to go. And it, it's not always us. We don't always send people to us. It's not about making money. or We want you to get the right help you need. So we partner with other nonprofit organizations that if we're not the ones that can help you, then you can say go to Warrior's Heart first if you have dependency and PTS issues together. They can help get you off the dependency open up the PTS door, and then we can take you from there with your relationship issues and help, you know, or if it's a faith-based issue, a lot of people, I've lost my faith. Okay. Well, here's another organization that helps you reclaim your faith and find out where you're at in life again. But the story is 
it doesn't have to end here. There is no end. You rewrite your ending whenever you want to. Well, now that's a profound statement for everyone. Yeah, everyone out there. So I I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come on and talk about the book and talk about your work, which I'm just totally, totally impressed. And, you know, hopefully we can do something as a follow up down the line. I I would really like that and invite you to come back. Um, Anyone out there? Oh, I'm happy to hear that. And and you can bring your wife next time, too. <laughs> um, She's amazing. She is amazing. I, I can see <laughs> that. I can see just by going through your website and, and, and the Virago website, the, the work that the two of you are doing together as a team is just uh, amazing and, and so well needed. It's so needed. So if you are a vet, out there if you are a spouse of a veteran or a child of a veteran and you need help don't feel bad about reaching out and as we close today uh, I just want to say and sometimes it's really hard in this big bad world we all live in but please just be kind to each other Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.